Good afternoon, Ramon. Good to see you again in one day. Um, I'll remind you that I'm Jacqueline Bulges. I'm one of the five members of the City of Madison's Police and Fire Commission. We are all residents of the Madison community. Under state law, the PFC has the sole authority to appoint the city's next chief of police. The PFC has spent the past year carefully working on this process, including collecting and reviewing a substantial amount of input from numerous groups, individuals, and other stakeholders. The PFC is grateful for all of this input, which has contributed to all stages of this process. Uh Uh-oh. I'm having trouble with the camera. Uh Got it? I hope so. All right. Okay. So the, the input, the community input has contributed to all stages of this process. The six questions that we will be asking each candidate today, this afternoon, are derived from that input. And I'm going to read those questions, those six questions in a minute here. With that context, I'd like to start with the first question. Ready? Yeah. Great. First question. Please take a few minutes to introduce yourself to the residents of Madison and tell us why you want to be our chief of police. Absolutely. Um, Hello, Madison. It is an honor to have the opportunity to introduce myself to you. I am Ramon Batista. I am of Latin descent. I, I speak, read, and can write in Spanish. But most importantly, I am the kind of person that respects and holds dear the best ideals of our country. Most importantly, respecting and protecting the rights of others. I cannot say that I was the first to graduate from college in my family. That honor belongs to my sisters. I was raised in an environment surrounded by determined women, the anchors being my mother and my grandparents. My values today reflect what they instilled in me. My mother was the epitome of perseverance and character and something that I align with to this day. My wife and daughter are pillars of strength and accomplishment, and I would not be here today without them. My career started with the Tucson Police Department, a city of over a half million people in 1986. During my career in Tucson, I worked in or supervised almost every major area of operations. During my time there, I obtained my bachelor and master's degree from Grand Canyon University. As a senior leader in Tucson, I enrolled in every major executive level training opportunity I could attend in preparation for one day becoming a police chief. This includes the FBI National Academy, the Major City Chiefs Association, the Police Executive Research Forum, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the University of Arizona, and Northwestern University's School of Police Staff and Command. My career in Tucson culminated as the Bureau Chief of Investigations and the Bureau Chief of Patrol where I had the care and oversight of a $90 million budget and over 600 personnel. In 2017, I was appointed to chief of Mesa, Arizona, a department with over 1,200 members in a city of over a half million people with an operating budget of just under $200 million. While in Mesa, we accomplished many great things, including a renewed emphasis on the importance of community trust, 
we launched several new programs aimed at building trust and legitimacy, including an introduction of community leaders working jointly with police department employees in the drafting and creating of new policies and procedures. We also started new mental and physical fitness wellness programs for department members, and we optimized. We optimized co-responder models to better address the issues of homelessness, drug addiction, and mental illness. Lastly, during my time in Mesa, our crime rate dropped to one of the lowest in the city's history, ranking Mesa as one of the safest big cities in the country. Now, why Madison? Three quick reasons. First, the city of Madison most closely resembles the 50 years I spent growing up and working in Tucson. Madison fits my expectation of a community that wants accountability and transparency in everything that we do. I matured in policing with the principles of community and problem-oriented policing as my blueprint. I am accustomed to being responsive to community needs and expectations. And lastly, I spent 20 years working with a civilian review board and an auditor model of oversight. In my time as a senior executive, I worked closely with the auditor in ensuring that we were meeting her office's needs and improving policing in Tucson. Next is the Madison Police Department. I've been studying the city and the police department for over six months. I've listened with intent to the Madison Police podcast, where every member spoke about their specific program or area of expertise. They displayed the kind of knowledge and understanding that I believe is necessary in order to continuously improve on the profession of policing. It is exciting to feel their energy and passion, and I have visited Madison more than once. I've been to the police stations, the training center, and I have visited the social service agencies that partner with the police department. I know that people come from far and wide to be a part of the Madison Police Department because they see something special in the department and the community, and I share in that ideal because I see it too. And lastly, although it is difficult for me to talk about myself, in this moment, I think it is important for you to know something about me. At a time when police officers and leaders in policing are leaving the profession, you still have dedicated men and women that are running toward the challenges. It is my belief that as a proven and experienced police leader, one who has had success, dealt with crisis, and challenged the status quo, I recognize that policing in America is going through a transformation. And because of my belief in the defense of a free and democratic society, I need to be a part of the solution to move our profession forward. I believe in it so much that I've written a book about it. We must all recognize that policing in this country is entering a new era. And I see this time as an amazing opportunity to be at the forefront of pro-social positive change for police and the communities that they serve. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm gonna move on to question number two. Do you believe local police have a role in enforcing federal immigration laws? Please explain. Um, so very simply, no, I do not believe that the police have a role in enforcing federal immigration laws. Um, in Arizona, we have had a very restrictive law called, in short, SB 1070. And when I was with Tucson, I dealt specifically with the implementation of this very stringent and restricted law uh, on our state and in our communities. The law essentially pitted um, the Hispanic population against law enforcement, against the police department. 
And so I took it upon myself to ensure that we were going to follow every aspect of the law in accordance with the Constitution and not violate people's rights. But at the same time, I had to make sure that I went out into the community and explained um, what the nuances to this law was and what it wasn't, because people were rightly terrified of, of what could happen. It was dubbed the show me your papers law. And uh, I, I took it upon myself uh, to go out into the community and, and talk about the fact that um, officers could not just randomly stop you, pull you over and ask you for your documentation about your, your status in the United States. Um, we implemented um, a software system whereby we were able to audit and account for the times that an officer would request for a background check on a person they, they had stopped for immigration purposes. And we conducted audits on those things. There were times when, uh, you know, throughout the program that our officers failed to meet the restrictive um, needs that, that were put in place in order for a check to be accounted for. And in those cases, uh, we were, I was part of the, the, the leadership group that was public about acknowledging that we had made a mistake. Um, we issued discipline and corrective action and continued to improve upon the systems to make sure that, that we uh, did not uh, encounter um, folks in situations and, and that led us to then inquire about their immigration status in situations where we shouldn't have. But the long and the short of it is, uh, in Arizona, we have a very restrictive law and, and we've had to work around it uh, or work with it. Um, I'll tell you that the law was put in in 2010. And uh, certainly by 2016, with the new president that came in, came to be and the rhetoric that he was bringing to the fore, um, I'll tell you that in, in my community in Arizona, that um, we didn't feel the kind of distancing that is normally associated with that type of rhetoric because police, I'm sorry, because the community trusted the police after us showing them for years that that was not our purpose. We were there to support um, the victims of crime. Um, and I made a great effort as both as an assistant chief in Tucson and certainly as a police chief in Mesa to delineate the fact that um, local policing was not going to be involved in the matters of federal immigration law. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on to question number three. It seems that police fear some of the communities they work in. Uh, and the communities, in turn, fear the police. What fears have you observed in the communities you've policed in, and what strategies might you deploy to help heal the harms that cause these fears? So I have a, a, a lot of experience in dealing with this issue that has to do with fear and reasonable fear, sometimes on the part of law enforcement when dealing with um, community members. And I'll tell you that uh, my greatest effort and my greatest energy has been focused on two things. One is on the training and, and the understanding for officers to have a, a, the, the best tools and the best mindset and the best education and training to go into situations and not be afraid unreasonably. I believe that when it comes to these two arcs that we seem to talk about a lot, which is officer safety and community safety. I believe, and I've seen through my experience, that when those two arcs are actually moving 
with one another instead of apart from each other is when we achieve what we want to achieve, which is both community safety and officer safety. I believe that if officers feel safe in those engagements and they feel confident in their abilities to talk through a situation and to deal with uh, folks who don't want to talk to us uh, in ways that are uh, disarming and de-escalating uh, the tension, I think that we have the greatest opportunity to walk away from those, those encounters safely. Now, conversely, it is my job, and I saw it as my job as an assistant chief and certainly as a police chief, to go out into the community and talk to them about the fact that we were working very diligently in, in making sure that they weren't mistreated. Because if there's one message that I constantly heard from minority communities was that they wanted to be protected, they wanted to be safe, but they also wanted to be respected, they wanted to be treated well, and they didn't want to be fearful of the police. You know, my cultural competence, my understanding of those feelings comes from being a, a Hispanic kid growing up in a, in a disadvantaged neighborhood and being pulled over as a child, as a 10-year-old kid on a bicycle, uh, as a teenager in my car. Um, and I guess I'm happy, uh, I am very happy that it didn't dissuade me from still wanting to be a police officer. But those experiences have really given me perspective on how that can impact uh, a young person's life or a community member's life, where all of a sudden they begin to feel like, hey, you know, why is this constantly occurring to me? Why are you talking to me in the manner that you talk to me? Um, and I think that all of those things are important. I always am going to believe that it is going to be incumbent upon the police as the most visible aspects of government to always extend a hand, to always be culturally competent and understand that the situation they're dealing with um, has to bring them to a new level of understanding of why it is that the person, the minority person that they're dealing with is afraid of them in that situation. The experiences of African-Americans and minorities in our communities across the country is different from those of, of folks living in white communities. And we have to acknowledge that. Um, the things that happened this past summer uh, only shed light on the fact that African-Americans have been saying for years that these types of injustices have been occurring to them. And it is incumbent upon us as leaders and police officers to recognize that and, and work towards improving those relationships. Thank you. Thank you for that one. Okay. Um, question number four. What is your personal perspective on police engagement with youth? Um, how can we ensure an environment in which youth are able to learn and thrive free from fear? Sure. I, I touched on it a second ago, and I'll tell you that um, uh, as a kid, I can remember my first uh, semblance of a thought that I wanted to be a police officer. I think I was 10 years old. And um, uh, I was the kid in the neighborhood who wanted to go and make contact with police officers. I, could, I would ride my bicycle up to officers on traffic stops to see if I could engage them in conversation. And while I look back now and realize that probably wasn't all that helpful, um, I had no opportunity as a young kid in trying to figure out how to 
better understand the police officer or what they did. And I'm fortunate, as I described earlier, that those encounters that I had with police when I was stopped as a, as a, as a young child, when I was stopped as a teenager, for no reason, um, that those events didn't dissuade me from continuing my quest of wanting to be a police officer. So what I did uh, once I became an officer is that certainly every opportunity I had to engage young people, I did it um, because I believe that every day, even in the environment that we're in today, there is a person that is born with a heart of service, a person that is born with the heart of a teacher that wants to go out there and wants to do public service and public good. It doesn't have to be a police officer or a firefighter. They can be in any type of public service agency or organization that is willing to put themselves out there for the cause of somebody else. I really had the best opportunity to make an impact on that as an assistant chief, as a patrol captain, and as, as a chief of police, because I looked to organization such as the Boys and Girls Club, where I then partnered up with them. I spent time at those places. I attended neighborhood cleanups with them. I dressed down and, and, and did some of the neighborhood cleanups with them. But I also went as far as assigning officers to to work in those uh, in those uh, clubs with the with the intent with the intent of forming relationships with the kids in those communities, um, because uh, I'm frankly never going to stop trying to figure out new and innovative ways to reach kids. I was very fortunate in that when I got to Mesa, um, there was a plethora of of youth driven initiatives. And we strengthened those commitments. Um, we had summer academies, summer youth programs. Um, we had something called the MESA program, which stood for Making Every Student Accountable. And it was a, a program aimed at getting kids who were really at risk and, and, and trying to form a foundation for them in order to be successful. And time and again, the conversations that I had with the parents uh, of those kids who reported back to me and told me what a difference the program was making for them, uh, only further fueled um, my effort and, and, and my resolve to make sure that we continued doing that. So, yes, I do believe that the police play a role in, in strengthening that aspect of the fabric of our society with young people, and it's certainly something that I would continue to do. I'm very aware of the youth programs uh, in the Madison community, um, and I would only look to strengthen that and, and build upon the programs that are in, in Madison. Thank you. Okay. Um, so what do you see, this is question number five, what do you see as the role of police in responding to mental health or drug-related crises? How do you ensure safety and inclusion for people with disabilities and uh, people actively struggling with mental illness and or addiction? So I am fortunate that I um, got to grow up in a police department that was progressive in nature. Um, and at one point I had oversight of our, of our team of officers that were specifically trained uh, to deal with persons experiencing mental crisis in Tucson. Um, that program grew uh, to the point that we developed a co-responder model where we began the uh, process of, of bringing in uh, 
trained clinicians to work side by side with the officers assigned to this team. Um, Tucson had an extensive uh, history of dealing with mental crisis. Um, way long time ago, we had a program that was similar to the CAHOOTS program in Oregon. In Tucson, it was called the Mobile Acute Crisis Team, the MAC team. And, and that was a team of clinicians that came out and, and helped you uh, as an officer deal with someone who was experiencing mental crisis and trying to find him uh, the, the right accommodations, uh, the right treatment uh, in order to, to alleviate whatever the situation was that they were experiencing. In Tucson, I also uh, had the experience of redirecting 911 calls from persons experiencing mental crisis into um, a hotline or into a, a, a group of trained clinicians who would first uh, take the call and do a triage of the type of call it was before they decided to dispatch um, two, three, or four officers to some of these calls that that um, were coming in as 911 crisis calls. I think that um, programs like that are, are innovative and important. I think that um, uh, police officers, as well as those um, in the community that have family members that are experiencing mental crisis, want that kind of thing because it's 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 a it's a crisis in that police officers have been thrust into doing this type of work um, because state and local governments have stopped funding it the way they should. I think that the future is in uh, a continuation and a strengthening of these co-responder models. Um, I don't believe that uh, that the police are the first line of response in issues uh, that that regard homelessness, drug addiction, uh, or mental illness. In Tucson, we also uh, started a uh, uh, a model for dealing with folks that had small amounts of narcotics uh, and and creating a diversion program for them instead of immediate incarceration. Um, so the majority of these programs, and the thoughts about how to work around those things were brought with me when I came to Mesa. In Mesa, uh, we had a, an optimized co-responder model for dealing with the homelessness, uh, for dealing with drug addiction and mental crisis. And um, uh, this idea of redirecting 911 calls with persons in crisis to clinicians that will handle those calls. I'll tell you a quick story about uh, uh, my time as a SWAT team commander. Uh, it was one of my first experiences in understanding that calls involving persons in crisis require a lot of patience and a lot of time and a lot of energy and effort to make sure that they are resolved peacefully. And so um, that was probably one of my greatest charges and accomplishments during my time as a SWAT team commander because I really do believe in the, in the oath that we take um, to protect life uh, and, and, and to save lives. And, and that, is a, that is a complete component of that and how I think and how I act. Thank you. Great. Okay, final question. Uh, the PFC used a short community survey to ask what the focus should be for the chief in the next two to three years. Uh, the top response at 57% uh, 
was to reduce crime. Please discuss your ideas about reducing crime through the innovative use of resources and partnerships to enhance community health and safety. So uh, first off, um, and, I, and I hate to, hate to use the, uh, the issue of the pandemic today, but it would be completely unfair to go to a hospital system and say, hey, solve this pandemic, um, because they can't. I'll tell you that I've been fortunate. I've worked in, in two really good departments that um, had the ability to uh, look at innovative ways at solving and addressing the issue of, of crime and disorder in, in our communities. I look at it as a, a holistic approach where you have to look at um, the, uh, the, the co-opting of, of different social services to come to bear and help in this, in this, in this issue, because it is, it is impossible to say that we're going to be able to put a police officer on every corner and to address uh, these issues with law enforcement as the sole driver of the reduction in crime. Now, having said that, there are innovative tools in policing that have to do with um, ensuring that you have up-to-date information about what's occurring and where it's occurring and be able to dedicate police resources to those areas. There are software systems that, that um, help with the tracking of, of um, spent, um, spent uh, gun shells, gun casings, in order to help you uh, better understand where where these guns have been and, and to establish a, a trace, a tracking of where the weapons have been used, where they were purchased. And, and those software systems are important, but it, it's, a, it's only a component of what has to be used. You know, you have to be thinking about um, the use of, of violence interrupters in, in the communities to help with addressing these issues. There has to be an additional layer of trust and support from from the, the leaders in the community that already have those established foundations in order to give us the opportunity to, to make a difference. Um, I think it's important that, that we start obviously young with, with young people and ensuring that there's job opportunities for them, ensuring that there's uh, uh, pathways for them to, to spend their time after school and not uh, simply hanging out at a corner. Um, we, we, I, I guess if you hear me correctly, what I'm trying to say is that the police department can't do this alone. I will guarantee you that, uh, and from what I've seen with Madison and my experiences, is that you are going to have a police department that is focused on public safety because it is important. But we aren't going to be able to do it alone. I will continue to expand on, on those public-private partnerships in and around Madison in order to help us identify um, and bring to bear the resources that help us uh, reduce crime and maintain a level of safety and, and community enjoyment that everybody can enjoy, while at the same time doing it in such a pinpoint manner that we carefully do not cause any further harm to the community. Um, I am not a proponent of any type of zero tolerance policies for law enforcement. I am a proponent of, of pinpoint accuracy in determining who is causing the harm 
and, and addressing those issues with them. And I'll be frank with you. There are some circumstances where I don't think that um, the criminalization of, of certain statues is really the best approach. If we're talking about homelessness, if we're talking about, um, you know, some small quantities of, of, uh, of narcotics. I think that there's opportunities there um, that are, that are non-traditional in nature. And I know that Madison um, has some of these things in place and I would strengthen those opportunities. Thank you. And thank you very much. Uh, thanks for participating this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.